is an audio platform created to educate, inform, and empower women to take charge of their physical and mental health. Join Shalana Battle and her occasional guests as they discuss many issues and health topics that concern women. While many health tips and advice will be discussed on this platform by licensed professionals, it should not take the place of seeking help from your own physician or therapist. If you feel that you need professional advice or medical assistance, do not hesitate to contact your provider. Now, let's get to the show. Hi there, and welcome to another episode of The Eavesdrop. This is season three, episode seven. Just three more episodes to go, and we will be moving on up to season four. I'm having such a great time bringing the good stuff to your radios, your smartphones, your tablets, laptops, and whatever other apparatuses and gadgets you use to listen to the eavesdrop. (laughs) Well, as promised, this week's episode is part two of the question and answering session featuring the wind down crew, Caroline, Alita, and Alexis, and the one and only Dr. Burgess. During part two, we are discussing everything from high-risk pregnancies, birth plans, advocating for your health, infertility, and so much more. You really, really want to listen to this episode in its entirety because there's so much nuggets to really even just experience in this episode so get your pens your notepads and your glass of chardonnay or sauvignon blanc whichever your heart desires and let's get to the show I'm very grateful for your insight, though. Um, You know, people talk about get the vaccine, get the vaccine, get the vaccine. You know, for people who are in those categories of pregnant, want to get pregnant, I'm worried about infertility. Hearing your insight is really helpful. It's reassuring for me, that's for sure. So I hope everyone listening out there feels the same way. My next question, uh, still on the topic of OB, I want to know, do you recommend women who are considered high risk for whatever reason, would you still recommend um, that they have a birth plan with a doula? Or do you think they're safer um, in a traditional hospital setting for labor and delivery? Okay, so I'm an ob I like doulas. Totally like them because I think they provide support and care for the pregnant woman. I don't like no birth plan. The only birth plan there is that mom is safe and baby is safe. <laughs> And both, everyone has to buy. I mean, the maternal mortality rate in this country has gone up. It is now, what is it, 19.8%. Especially for Black women. It was 17%. And the difference is, is that, okay, so Black women are like high on the curve. We like never got down to normal, period. Mm-hmm. But Caucasian women bumped up a little bit. Um, brown women stayed the same. Black women, like I said, we were just off the chart. We ain't never, like, we didn't even consider in the statistics. We were just mm-hmm. still up there. But the white women have gone up as far as their maternal mortality. So the maternal mortality in this country has gone up from 2018 to 2019. I don't even want to see what 2020 is going to put out when they put out, the CDC puts that out. 
Um, and so when the maternal mortality rate is on the rise, as OB guys become a little bit more vigilant because we're like, okay, this is not normal. Like, why is it that we're a first world country? We're a developed country and we have women dying like we're a third world country. Like, what is going on here? And it seriously mm -hmm. is a problem. I attended a talk on Zoom, obviously, based out of New York. And there's a couple committees with the state of New York trying to figure out what are the strategies that we need to do to help with that. And I am all for patient-informed decision-making, patient-centered decision-making, but that damn birth plan, hell no, we're not doing it. That's just my opinion. Because I do have patients that say, I don't want an IV and I don't want to be monitored. I'm like, look here, you're impinging on my judgment as a physician to take proper good care of you. And when I begin to sway with my decision-making, I've learned that's not a good idea because then it puts me in a buttonhole when something seriously happens. And then I'm like, dang, I should just follow what I was supposed to do instead of I'm trying to please her but that's not medically indicated, you know? So a lot, and a lot of times patients have, they're like, oh, well, I wanna make sure that my daddy cuts the cord, my husband cuts the cord. I'm like, I'm gonna make everything possible. You can express your desires, but to put mm -hmm. it on a birthing plan, it's gonna go on a paper shredder. That's what I tell my patients. I said, the, the birthing plan is mom survives, baby survives, and we have a safe delivery. Now you have desires and stuff like that. And that you can have an open conversation with your OB-GYN. But I hate them damn birth plans because sometimes they're like five, six, seven pages. I'm like, we ain't doing this. You're getting an IV. You might get two IVs. If you want an epidural, you can have one. You don't have to have one. My C-section rate is very low. If I go back for a C-section, it's because you really need it. And sometimes patients will go back and forth with me. I'm like, you don't understand. I'm doing this for the baby. Now, you can do what you want. But the baby, I'm going to speak for the baby because the baby doesn't have a choice. The baby's not mm -hmm. doing well. I need to go, we need to go back for a C-section. So there is this movement now in the country with women feeling empowered and they should, but with certain measure, like there's a reason why I'm an OB-GYN um, because there's certain things that we see when we're managing patients where we're like, mm, this is not going to turn out too good. And even if we try to explain it to the patient, the perception may, they may interpret it differently and they may not understand it. And so I explain it to patients when I say, look, you have got, you get, you have to have a C-section. You have to be monitored. The strip is flat. Something's abnormal, but the doula, I support it. I think they need to have physical therapy in the postpartum period. I think every mm -hmm. woman should have a consultation with physical therapy in regards to pelvic floor therapy in the postpartum period. But that's just my forward thinking in this country. They do that in France, actually. Every pregnant woman gets it. Yeah. But and pelvic floor therapy, I think over in um, England, it's a standard practice. After six weeks, they do pelvic floor therapy. But going back to the, the birth plans, I do agree, like to a certain extent, that women should be able to rely on their doctors for certain decisions. But I used to welcome them when patients brought them because it opened up the communication, like what the patient desires, what 
they are looking for out of their experience. Um, I do think that if women do use birth plans, they should discuss the birth plan with their provider and there should be some type of oneness that they come to an agreement like in the middle, like, okay, yes, this is what I want, but I do understand if this were to happen, then I'll be open you know, to intervention because I do think it is a way for the woman's voice to be heard, um, to make them feel like they're a part of the, the team in a way, but I do understand where you're coming from because sometimes it can get in the way of doing what's necessary when there is emergencies that come up. I mean, I agree. I mean, it's mm-hmm. for some women, it, it is a platform they use mm-hmm. to communicate with their doctor. And that's why I say if mm-hmm. there's any desire, you should be able to have an open communication with your ob guy. You may say, look, doc, I want to have lavender scent in my room. Mm-hmm. I'm like, that's totally fine. Like, you know, I'm a type of person, I will allow whatever you need to feel comfortable in the birthing process, I'm open to. I'm open if you want a doula there because doulas mm-hmm. are supportive. So it's important to have open communication. If you cannot have an open communication with your ob then that's the wrong ob for you. Right. Because childbirth is a stage in womanhood and you are at times maybe very vulnerable emotionally or you may be compromised because you have an epidural, um, you're doing mm-hmm. a vaginal delivery or a C-section. So you should be able to have an open conversation with your doctor and be like, look, doc, if I, if anything, I really don't want an epidural. And I'm like, okay, I'm totally fine with that. But yeah, there needs to be open communication. We got to learn how to compromise in the process. I love that compromise in the process. I think with me, I, I'm the one who like, I have to be in control not in the sense that I have to make all the decisions, but I have to know what's going on. So for me during my pregnancy, I created my birth plan with my doctor. And so we went over all these things together. So hearing what you're saying about having a birth plan, like I can totally see that because that was the same way that my doctor was responding to some of the like out of the box things that I was like trying to bring into the room, like a whole pool. And she's like, let's take a step back and talk about a few of these things together and create a plan that keeps you happy and keeps the baby healthy too. So I love that. Love that. Um, My next question was that, um, are there certain things that high risk um, or expecting moms in a high risk pregnancy, are there certain things that they should look for if they're selecting a doctor for the first time? So in the case when it's a high high risk pregnancy, you're going to eventually be seen by a perinatologist. A perinatologist is a maternal fetal medicine doctor who the OBGYN should be working with closely. So the most important thing when it comes to high-risk pregnancy is communication. I know that sounds very simple, but it's important. Let me tell you why. One, the doctor needs to explain to you why you have a high-risk pregnancy but that doctor needs to explain to you what are some of the complications that can occur in this high-risk situation. The doctor should be open about your treatment plan. Like, this is what we are expecting. By your second trimester, we're going to be doing an ultrasound every week. Like, communication is very important. Same thing when it comes to maternal fetal medicine. Now, when you have a high-risk pregnancy, the biggest puzzle, piece of the puzzle is trying to figure out what type of maternal food of medicine doctor you want. Do you want one that's more one-on-one, like a private physician, or you're open to one that works at an academic center 
where there's a lot of teaching involved. And some people like that because they actually learn extra stuff about whatever the high-risk situation is. But then you may see more than one doctor, maternal fetal medicine doctor. And sometimes the communication ball gets dropped. So making sure that your doctor talks to you about every single thing and not, oh, your heart rate looks fine, fundal height is good, you're going to see the maternal fetal medicine next week. And that's it. It shouldn't be that way. Like now it's a team of three instead of a team of two. It's you, the OB-GYN and the maternal fetal medicine. I mean, with my patients, I do call my MFM. I call her on the weekend. I'm like, hey girl, you saw my patient last week. I understand she has high blood pressure, blah, 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 blah. What are you thinking? And she may say, hey, yeah, I put a report out there. Just watch your blood pressure. So everyone's, there's an extra set of eyes out for you because you're a high-risk pregnancy. You don't want people just, you know, communicating and not involving you in the conversation. That's when bad things happen and you don't really know why they happen because no one has really told you anything. Mm-hmm. You don't want that feeling. Your fetal loss, I hope that someone communicated with you. You did the additional testing because that's important. It's ultimately you are the center of the universe. I mean, you're the center of the care. So communication is key. So when you interview, you just say, can you just make sure that we discuss a treatment plan at each and every visit? So would that be my responsibility as the expecting mom and the patient to make sure that my two doctors are communicating with each other? Or does that fall more on the doctors to do that on their own? It falls more on the doctors, but you want to say, hey, doctor, so-and-so, each time we meet, can you go over my treatment plan? And then when you see the maternal fetal medicine, because doctors forget, I'm going to tell you right now, sometimes they're post-call, they're tired, fatigue, or whatever. If you have gone to see your maternal fetal medicine doctor, and then you're going back to see your OB-GYN, you should say, well, hi, doctor so-and-so, you know, I saw my maternal fetal medicine doctor two weeks ago. This was the discussion plan of care. You know, is anything going to change? Like you get their input. And, you, and when you do that a couple, more, a couple of times, they just expect to do it. But communication is key. I sit on the fetal infant mortality review um, in Broward County. Uh, where we address and investigate infant deaths and maternal deaths. And in about 15% of the cases, probably more than that, communication is like the problem. Like the MFM is doing one thing, OB-GYN is doing another. And I'm like, hello, like, why don't you guys come together and explain to this patient that she needs care, she needs to follow up, she needs to do this and that, and maybe she would not have had a fetal death. So sometimes you have to be the catalyst for the communication. Wow, that, I love that. You know, that changes the culture. It changes the maternal culture and that in turn it changes maternal mortality rate. Mm-hmm. You, know, you know, you take ownership in that and making sure that they communicate. You just say, hey, um, MFM said this. What do you think? Are we going to go with this? You know, engage them in the conversation. If mm-hmm. they don't do that, then you know, you don't, you need to find you another doctor. Because that means if they're not listening on the front end, when there's a problem during the pregnancy or during the uh, laboring, they're not going to listen either. So that's really important. Mm. Mm. Take ownership. The way I take ownership of that birth plan, I'm going to take ownership of this communication (laughs) too. Yeah, it's important. Patients have to be involved. Yep. (laughs) 
All right. Well, my last OB question, at what point should couples seek an infertility specialist? So if the couple, or particularly the woman, if she's over the age of 30, after six months, she needs to get at least a consultation with the infertility doctor or reproductive endocrinologist is the proper name for it. If they're under the age of 30, they can try for a year. And if they don't get pregnant within a year, then they need to see a reproductive endocrinologist so that they can do further workup. It's imperative that the male gets worked up. And I know what people say, they're like, oh, well, it could be the female. I'm like, no, male is cheaper. All they have to do is submit their sperm. They have to go into a quiet room, watch some porn or whatever, and they have to give semen into a cup. And so they can do a semen analysis is much cheaper than the workup that you're going to get in an infertility workup. So say for instance, you have your partner may have had kids maybe 15 or 12 years ago, 12 or 15 years ago. Some doctors may say, well, oh, they don't need a workup. The male doesn't because he has kids. Let me tell you something. Men produce sperm every 72 hours, I believe. They do this until they, until they like die. Okay. Unlike women, we are born with the eggs that we have. And by the time we are, when we're menstruating, half of those eggs are already gone. So the time is ticking. And it's still important that men get checked. And it's important to get a semen analysis. It's important for you to get your hormones checked to find out what's going on. It's important because the doctor is going to ask about your menstrual cycle. Have you ever been pregnant before? Part of the workup involves doing a pelvic ultrasound. Is there anything anatomically that may be impending you from getting pregnant? What if you have a fibroid that's blocking your right ovary? I mean, right tube? Then no, you're not going to get pregnant. Or what if you keep having miscarriages and you have fibroids? The fibroids may be the problem. Or what if it is that maybe when you were in college, you had a chlamydia infection, it took a long time to be treated, get treated, and it blocks your tubes. So a lot of times you need a pelvic ultrasound, blood work to make sure your hormones are, are normal, and two, a histosalpingogram, a HSG. We'll just make it, just make it short, HSG. That is where we inject dye into the uterus and into the tubes to see if the tubes are patent. And in some cases, the tubes may be blocked. And if the tubes are blocked, guess what? Ain't no medication going to open up those tubes. So you eventually have to go and get like IVF, something, okay, or artificial insemination. So make sure both male and female gets worked up. So moving right along, I am introducing the patient advocacy questions. So one of the things that we were concerned about with COVID-19 is that there are a lot of women who have skipped out on their doctor's appointment due to COVID-19. How safe would you say it is to return to the doctor's office? All right. So I never stopped. <laughs> Let's see. All right. So I, I was doing telehealth, but I had to actually see patients in the office. And so we actually, between all my partners, we decided one day a week we were going to see patients because we have OB patients that need to be seen, make sure the baby's still alive, listen to the heartbeat, because they weren't going to the hospital. They were like, no, we're not yes. going to the hospital because of COVID. 
So we had to be open one day out of the week to do to see OB patients. But there was a delay, of course, patients who had annual exams that were due. I reassured them that, look, if everything was normal, it's okay. We can do it months later. It's fine. If you had an abnormal pap, we'll resume once we open up our office, which our office is already open because of the risk of, you know, it advancing to cervical cancer, even though it takes a long time for cervical cancer to develop. But contraceptive needs, what I started doing during the pandemic, because we had a little bit of an issue because, you know, in India, well, the United States gets most of its progesterone. India is the main supplier of most of the progesterone supply in America. And we had a little bit of a problem with certain uh, IUDs, like our Marina and Kailina, mm-hmm. and our Nexplan, because they were all on back order. Because what was happening was, is that even though they were sending out shipments, it became less and less. Like, we would only get one IUD. We're like, where's the rest of the IUDs? Yes. And then we would ask the pharmaceutical rep, and they're like, our suppliers are running low. I'm like, okay, that means that there's a supplier somewhere that's affected by the pandemic and cannot get into that factory mm-hmm. to create that IUD to get shipped to America. I mean, that literally is what happened. Mm-hmm. And people don't understand that. Like, there are suppliers overseas that we could not get stuff from them yeah. to make keep things functioning here. So what I started doing for contraception, I actually started to um, supply everyone with a one-year supply. I was like, you need it? Mm-hmm. Quick, one year. Because I didn't know. We didn't know. Yeah, and so yeah. everyone had pills. I said, here, I said, there's a possibility that the pharmacy may substitute if they are running low on supplies. So it's very important. One thing I will tell you that was very, that really was impacted by the pandemic was abortion services mm-hmm. because it just didn't happen. So a lot of women, wow. a lot of illegal abortions that did go on during mm-hmm. the pandemic because what if there's a complication? Wow. Yes. Um, a lot of the abortion clinics were not open. And if they were not taking that many, and there's been some rules and regulations because some of the states did not find, feel that abortion services were uh, necessary services. Granted, I'm not, I don't do abortions. I don't necessarily believe in them, but I also believe that a woman has a choice. And mm-hmm. um, when the state steps in and says it's not a necessary service you've literally taken that choice from that woman yes so Mm -hmm. that did happen in five states oklahoma indiana was it texas no it wasn't texas i think it was mississippi and it was two other states i can't remember but during the pandemic yeah the contraceptive thing was very interesting because people were Mm -hmm. calling and i was like okay we don't want no unwanted children everybody gonna get your supply of birth control pills I even, we did make room for people to come in to get their IUDs and Nexplanons. So mm-hmm. during that one day, half a day, we had people come in, get their IUDs and Nexplanons placed because you still need contraception. Like, just like people still need like blood pressure pills. Yeah. So that's but that definitely trickles down why it was important to yes. give those patients that birth control because you don't think about how the pandemic affects abortion clinics, you think they just run all the time, but if they're not running and you have patients who get pregnant by mistake, that can c- create a whole nother circle of issues. Right. Because after then that, you, yeah. 
give Cytotec and then what if they don't pass all the tissue? As you guys know, during the pandemic, they stopped all the surgeries unless it was emergency mm-hmm. surgery. Because mm-hmm. we didn't have like it wasn't even the COVID-19 that stressed me. It was the darn PPE. Because every day, okay, so what do we have now to go in for the C-section? Do I have a hair? I had to get stuff from like Nova. Like, we have no shoe cover. Jeez. It was rough. And I was like, I can't. But, you know, still things have to go on. So imagine if you had to do emergency surgery from uh, abortion. Like that didn't, well, a botch abortion or something like that. Yes. Mm -hmm. You know, blood, if she needed blood. (sighs) Where were they going to put her in the hospital? I mean, there were... Hospitals that were maxed out on COVID nineteen, roles yes. were limited. But who wants to do? Who wants to do the procedure? So they right. collective. So yes, so many things. Mm-hmm. It's important that you still be an advocate for patients. Yeah, you have to. Yeah. So switching gears a little bit, this goes back to some things we've been seeing more recently in news. Some people say that doctors are to black women what police officers are to black men. What advice do you have for healthcare providers that don't look like us, but are responsible for our care? So let me just tell you, that is right. Some of them are, some are very indifferent. There's this perception that black women don't feel pain. They give us less pain medication. Things are very subpar. They don't listen to us. I always tell patients that do bring it up because it's, it's a very sensitive issue. Mm-hmm. The medical community does not talk about racism in medicine. They just don't. Mm-hmm. But we know as Black health professionals that it, it exists. Okay? Mm-hmm. I mean, being a health professional, you are always an advocate for your family members because you know how the game is done. There's always a stereotype go back and look at history and we're not even I'm not even talking about Tuskegee we can talk about Henrietta Lack we can talk about mm-hmm. the women where Simpson OBGYN Simpson was doing uh repeated surgeries on black women to test for fistulas and pelvic floor issues they have multiple surgeries and procedures done without mm-hmm. any anesthesia but it goes back to the whole idea of race. Race is a made up name. Mm-hmm. It's not, it was, it's a man-made name. And it goes back when the constitution felt like as blacks, we were only what, three-fifths of a human. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if it's in there. I think they may have taken it out. But at one point we were not even considered full humans. So then I'm like, okay, well, they probably don't feel as much pain. We can do surgery on them without mm-hmm. anesthesia. Um, and it still goes on today. And so that's why we need more black doctors mm-hmm. uh, out there. I mean, Mahari just put out, I got an email from Mahari. They were looking for students who were interested in the field of medicine and they were offering them, um, uh, no, Tennessee, the Tennessee state, excuse me, was offering them a uh, program where they would go through Tennessee state and then matriculate into Meharry as training as physicians. Cause we need more black doctors who are culturally competent, who mm-hmm. understand what it's like to be a black woman or a black male. Because a lot of times whites or different other persuasions don't understand our culture. And it's not like they don't, 
you know, they don't want to learn. I'm going to say they don't want to learn because they don't feel like they're part of the problem. That's what the mm -hmm. problem is race in this country. Like other races don't feel like they're part of the racism in this country. Like they mm -hmm. feel like it's only a black person problem. And I'm like, no, it's everybody's problem because we're all Americans, right? Judgment, decisions that are made. There's a lot of black owned hospitals over the decades that have closed because we don't get the money. But, you know, they were a pillar in the community, but they closed down because they didn't get federal funds. And so a lot of times we're just kind of stuck out there where there's not that many black healthcare professionals and we try to take care of black patients as much as we can. So as a patient, sometimes you have to seek out your own. And mm. I'm not saying all white doctors are bad. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying that at all, but you really try to, because sometimes you got black doctors who fall into the stereotype and be like, oh no, you're fine. Mm -hmm. like, oh, you need to give her pain medication. She's in pain. Like believe her when she yeah. says that. The pandemic was a fine example. Let's talk about Serena. Let's talk about Serena Williams. Yeah. She's delivering West Palm Beach. She said, I'm short of breath. She goes to the nursing station. She says, I'm short of breath. She just, she just had a baby, had a C-section. And they're like, oh, well, you know, you just probably need pain medication. So they're like, here, take some pain medication. You should be fine. She goes back and she says, no, I, I feel short of breath. Something is wrong. Still did not listen to her. Mm -hmm. Came at the third time and she's like, you know, this is not, this is not normal. I want to talk to the doctor. I think something's wrong. Sure enough, she had a pulmonary embolism. Yeah. Now, if you guys follow her, she had a pulmonary embolism several Some years time before. ago before right. mm -hmm. now did that doctor that OBGYN do a good job in history taking and preventing her from getting another PE because she's now in her uh postpartum period increased risk of blood clots totally missed it I mean that can happen to anybody mm -hmm. but there's this big thing in the room that America's we don't talk about and it's the race thing mm -hmm. and I don't even know how to even get around it or even what to say it's just that I think that as minorities that we need to infiltrate the boardrooms, we don't have health equity. We have diversity, mm -hmm. but we don't have no health equity. We don't have no powerful chips at the table. There's a lot of strategies for maternal mortality. I talk about maternal mortality because that's like my biggest thing. And even though we're foot soldiers and we implement the policies mm -hmm. that I made, we're not sitting at the boardroom or sitting behind around the table discussing what strategies to even create to implement. Mm -hmm. We're not there. And it's probably, it's like a whole bunch of white folks, I'm sorry, white males sitting around the table saying, oh, we ought to do this strategy. This may help. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, we're not there from the jump start when it comes to our own health. It's everyone yeah. else dictating to us what we need to do with our health. But there's none of us included in the, around the table. And that's because mm -hmm. it's, that, it's that whole race thing. So we don't have equity. We may have equality as far as access, quote unquote, access to good health care. But I mean, I mean, this is like a whole nother conversation. Yes. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna shut my mouth. But anyway, mm -hmm. we just don't have the equity. We don't have any power to make the changes that we need. So as a follow-up to that, what advice would you give to women who need to advocate for themselves, especially when they don't trust their doctor? 
you leave that doctor. <laughs> um, but you demand answers. I mean, remember now, not only are you requesting help, not only do we need health equity, but you got to demand power. Like you got to be like, look, mm -hmm. I know that you're my doctor. I may not have the best insurance. I may have subpar insurance, but you getting something from my insurance. I expect for you to tell me what's going on. Each, every time you go into that doctor's office, you need to have a list of questions. You need to know what medication you're on. You need to ask why, mm -hmm. uh, why this medication? Why are we doing this surgery? What are the potential complications? Mm -hmm. Like you need to arm yourself because that's the only way it's going to change. Because it's when true. someone doesn't look at it as their own problem, they're not going to change because they don't see anything that needs to be changed, right? Mm -hmm. They think it's all on us. So you have to be an advocate for yourself. There's patients that have come to me and said, oh, I had a surgery. I'm like, you don't know what you had? I think they took out this. I'm like, no, that's your body. You paid that doctor to do that surgery and you don't know mm -hmm. what they took out. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times as uh, patients, we're totally ignorant of why we're on certain medications. You need to write down a list, ask questions, demand that your doctor treat you with respect. I do mm -hmm. that all the time with my mom. I'm like, no, you need to go back to that doctor. You need to tell X, Y, and Z. And if they give you a hard time, they give you attitude, look, you can report them to the medical board for unprofessional behavior. Mm -hmm. yeah. right. And when you walk into that doctor's office with that mindset and with that attitude like this is my health i'm in charge of it i'm about to advocate for myself it makes a big difference it does to how you're treated not saying that this is okay i think doctors and nurse practitioners should treat their patients the same across the board but when you walk in there knowledgeable and you stand your ground it makes a big difference it just makes a difference mm -hmm. yeah it does and I, yeah. I, that's one thing I do push for patients. I'm like, every, you know what you ate this morning. So you need to know what pills you took this morning. Yeah. You know what each one of them is for. What are the side effects? Just don't be taking pills because the doctor told you, oh, you need to take pills. Uh-uh. I mean, we done gone through the Tuskegee. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. We had a lack. We should know by now. <laughs> yes. We can't just be trusting folks. Yes. Mm -hmm. Um, and I know there's a lot of distrust or mistrust in the health, in the African-American community. How do we combat that? We advocate for our health. Mm -hmm. We demand answers. We demand, tell me why are we doing this process? Because you know what they do? They assume that we don't know. When yeah. I walked into an emergency room one time with my son, this doctor just talked to me like I was nobody. And I was like, excuse me. I started asking questions and he was like, what are you a nurse? I'm like, no, I'm a physician. So you okay. need to tell why Mic drop. <laughs> because they just have this mindset that we're ignorant black women or black men. Mm -hmm. We don't know what they're talking about. So why even bother explaining it to them? And you're like, no, buddy, you don't know if I'm the CEO of mm -hmm. a company that you purchased from, but mm -hmm. it's, it's the perception. I mean, yeah. Ridiculous. My next door neighbor still thinks I'm a nurse. I'm like, I keep telling him I'm a physician. Mm -hmm. But it's just like <laughs> that is just sick. Oh, just yeah, thinking that you can't be. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So definitely, that's important when it comes to patient advocacy. Mm -hmm. yeah. I have a follow up. 
yes, to ma'am. that, where you were saying that we should do our own research and learn and ask questions and things like that. Recently, I had to call my doctor because I just, I wasn't feeling like myself. Something felt off. I was tired all the time. I felt groggy all the time. I just, I knew something was wrong with my body and she ordered a full workup to see what was wrong, like a whole, I guess, a blood panel. Right. Okay. Right. Mm -hmm. To see what was wrong. Mm -hmm. And so when I was looking at all these abbreviations of like a CBC and an A1C and all these other letter combinations, I started to try to like web MD my way through <laughs> what all these things mm-hmm. meant once my results started coming back. But between web MD and 17 seasons of Grey's Anatomy, I'm not sure if I'm looking <laughs> in the right place for the information I need. So like as a patient who uh, cried her way through chemistry in undergrad, where should I go to find out this kind of information or like get those kinds that get that knowledge? Like, where do you think I should go? You should go to your doctor. Mm-hmm. I, okay. So patients will Google stuff in a web MD and I, I'm like, I commend you for doing that, but because it's not interpreted sometimes not the right way and it may be misinterpreted. When your doctor draws blood work, he or she should go through every line and explain everything. Mm-hmm. If that doctor does not, then you can just look them in the face and say, you know, I'm sadly disappointed. I wanted you to review all my labs and you just need to find you another doctor. Okay. I mean, straight up because I don't expect when I order labs, I don't expect, I know my patients do this. Because I have a patient that does that. And she's like, well, it says this, Dr. Burgess. I'm like, yeah, but you know what? That hormone over there regulates this hormone. So this is the reason why it's high. She's like, oh, I didn't know that. I just looked on Google and it was elevated. So I thought I had diabetes. I'm like, no, it don't work like that. And so (laughs) I wouldn't do the web. And if you got a family member that wants to interpret your blood work, Mm -hmm. that's fine. But your own healthcare provider should be sitting down with you after he or she has ordered mm-hmm. everything and say, okay, this is normal. This is normal. This is abnormal. Let's watch this. Maybe your cholesterol is a little bit high. You're good or bad. Like that's the type of conversation doctors need to be mm-hmm. having need to be having with their patients. And if they're not, you need to call them to the carpet and be like, excuse me, I paid for these labs. Hello. Mm-hmm. And I paid for that visit. I need for you to tell me what's going on. Now, Mm -hmm. if I need to make another appointment to see you in the face, that's fine, because you'll never forget it. I'm that type of person. I'm like that with my own OB-GYN. I'm like, wait a minute, what you ordering that for? You know, tell me. And she knows I'm a physician. I'd be like, what you doing? Don't be slipping that on me. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, well, you're going to get some blood work. No, excuse me. Hold up. Can y'all get my doctor, please? I'm sorry. We didn't have Mm -hmm. that conversation. What are we doing this for now? Because you're paying for it for those lab work the lab mm-hmm. work mm-hmm. so that's empowering yourself to say no you need to you need to explain this stuff to me yeah so thank you for answering that one yeah. of the last questions that i have kind of to wrap all of this stuff up is what should i expect when i go to my doctor for a thorough wellness exam because some people think that you go to your gynecologist and they do this wellness exam and they are like your PCP. Mm-hmm. But what do you think should that be happening at the, at, with the PCP's office, at the gynecologist's office, all in one? What does a thorough wellness 
visit look like for a woman? Okay. So for a thorough wellness visit, it is not, it may not include a pap. Okay. So your primary care physician, it could be a family medicine. It could be nurse practitioner. It could be an internist. Mm -hmm. internist looks more into chronic diseases. It's a little bit more focused adult medicine. They should listen to your heart and lungs. They need to look in your eyes, your mouth, check your thyroid. I mean, you know, they should do a full generalized physical exam. Mm -hmm. They need to also do a update on your history to make sure there has not been any changes since the last time you saw them. How are you feeling mental health wise? Um, how are you feeling? Are you, are you not sleeping well at night for the past six months? Are you exp experiencing signs and symptoms of anxiety or depression? Have you gained weight? your vital signs, your heart rate, your blood pressure, your temperature, if anything is off or your BMI has increased, that's a conversation that the doctor needs to be having and find out what's going on. What medications are you taking? What's your diet? Are you on any supplements? So I didn't go into primary care because I knew that it was like really intense. But like even for OB, I listen to my patient's heart and lungs and most of the time, everything is okay. My students be like, Dr. Burgess, you're a gynecologist. Like, why do you listen to your heart and lungs? I said, I do it for two reasons. One, sometimes there is an issue and I have to say, mm -hmm. you know what? I'm going to order a chest x-ray. I need for you to follow up with your primary care provider. Or sometimes I do it because they need to relax and them breathing in and out relaxes them. I don't tell them that, mm -hmm. but just to kind of get them to relax and so they're not tense because a lot of people don't like going to the gynecologist. Mm -hmm. um, but that's my, you know, a primary care and then doing blood work, CBC. A CBC is a complete blood count where you're checking your hemoglobin level, you're checking your platelets to help regulate your blood clots. You're also doing like a Chem 7 to check your potassium, which is important, like all your electrolytes, which is important, checking your kidney status, checking your cholesterol, good, bad, total cholesterol, and any other necessary blood work that needs to be done. But those are like the three main blood tests that you would do. Um, you know, you may need, during the exam, they may hear a murmur that they didn't hear last year or two years ago. And they're like, you know what? Mm -hmm. I need a cardiologist. I think I hear a murmur. So I need you to go see the cardiologist. So they may not do any STI testing. They may just turf it to the guy. That's what they do 99% of the time. Mm -hmm. That's because in America, we're so super specialized, unlike yeah. other countries where a doctor, that's it. You have a doctor doing everything and delivering the baby mm -hmm. um, or the nurse or even the midwife. Everyone is doing mm -hmm. the whole thing. Here in America, everything is so specialized. So, yeah. um, you know, it's important that you make sure you have the open communication and your expectations because even though those are your expectations of what a primary care doctor does, that may not be his or her expectations. And mm -hmm. you have to clarify that before you make that appointment with your doctor or a nurse practitioner, or when you go in for your visit, be like, doc, I need X, Y, and Z done. Can you please order this for me? And they'll be like, no, and you should ask them why not. I haven't gotten mm -hmm. it. Because remember, you pay the insurance company and you pay the copay. Mm -hmm. You know, we yeah. only we may only get twenty dollars <laughs> for that visit, but that mm -hmm. is money. That's twenty dollars that can go into the gas tank, right? That's twenty dollars that can buy some Bitcoin or some little, <laughs> and, <laughs> right? So, remember, there, there is power in your dollar, and I think as Ameri as Black Americans, 
we have a problem with the power behind the dollar because mm-hmm. we're the biggest consumers in the world. We always like buying stuff as blacks. We just like buying stuff. And we fail to realize that there's power behind the dollar. So like we can move and make things happen mm-hmm. behind the dollar. We, mm-hmm. we just don't do it because we're, we're consumers. So that means we're always up under someone's thumb. And they're the ones that end up dictating to us what opportunities that we have for ourselves. So mm-hmm. you ask the doctor, I want this blood work done. Can you check my thyroid, please? Can you check my legs? Can you check the moles on my body? Make sure everything is okay. Like those are some of the things you have to make doctors accountable. I mean, there's things that I forgot and my, my, my patients will say, well, Dr. Burgess, you forgot. I'm like, you know what? You're absolutely right. Let me go back mm-hmm. and let me So. That's the thing when it comes to patient advocacy, you got to advocate for your own health because no one else is going to love you more than yourself. Right. And I, just to add to that too, I think that it's very important for people to find providers that will listen to them and kind of heed to their advice. Like if a patient comes to me and they're like, oh, you know, I think you should do this don't have a power trip and be like, oh, I'm the provider. I'm the person that's supposed to be in charge of all of this. Do what's being asked because it doesn't hurt. (laughs) It it doesn't hurt. And a lot of times doctors need to feel, you know, they need to understand that patients are also consumers. Mm -hmm. I mean, mean, even though we shouldn't look at it as a business, but remember being humanistic, you're human, I'm human, let's treat each other the same. But that doesn't happen. You know, people mm-hmm. treat it badly. People get subpar treatment or care. It's just totally unacceptable. Yes. But mm-hmm. You would be surprised. Yeah. You would be surprised how many people feel like they're entitled to treat you a certain way. And you just, you look at them, you'd be like, you wouldn't let your mom be treated like that. You don't want to be treated like that, but mm-hmm. you'll treat somebody else like that. Yeah. So, in order to take control of that, you have to be an advocate and don't be scared to speak up. Because remember, you're paying them to take care of you. It's an honor for me to do a surgery on somebody. Mm-hmm. It's an honor for me to go into a room and see a patient take care of a patient because they can simply refuse. They can refuse to have the surgery. They can refuse to see me. You know, me having the ability to take care of a patient and they chose me, that's how, that is the way that you should look at things but you'd be surprised Mm -hmm. i have future doctors in the world that are i'm training and i have to keep them in check i have to be like come back down medical student (laughs) come back down okay it is an Mm -hmm. honor to do surgery on somebody that you're cutting open and you're suturing and you're taking out parts like don't think of it as just like oh one score up i got one hysterectomy down or i got one cervical pap down or a colposcopy or a biopsy down um and i'm expecting 50 more you know look as look at a person as a person and not just an object yeah um but you know that's that's the american way there are a lot of there are a lot of doctors that feel that way and Mm -hmm. would dare you to say something if they had a nasty attitude yeah it's unacceptable it is unacceptable yeah 
So this has been a wealth of knowledge. And I know that someone listening or people who will listen will at least find one thing out of this conversation <laughs> that will help them. But before we go, is there a story that you would like to share of a patient case or a situation that you will always remember, whether it was a crazy situation or if it was something that was special where you touched the patient or the patient touched you in a special way? Um, okay, I'm gonna make this quick and to the point. So before I moved back to Florida, I'm a native Floridian, born and raised right here in South Florida. But I started practicing in Wisconsin because I was with the National Health Service Corps, which is with the federal government. And I practiced in a very busy clinic. I mean, easily 60 patients a day. And mm -hmm. I was working the night shift because we would have urgent care. And I was in uh, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And yes, there's black people in, in Milwaukee. There's a lot of black people <laughs> in Milwaukee. Because my family said, they were like, you're going where? So yeah. And my urgent care is from 5 to 9.30 p.m. So we're in downtown, street walkers, dusty butts, like everything, pimps. It's just, just like that. So I walk into this room and this lady is like all like glamorized. Like she looks like a model. And she comes in, she's like, I'm having this vaginal discharge. I don't know what's going on. And I said, okay, well, you know, get undressed. I had a nurse practitioner student with me, so she was shadowing me. And so I, was, I had to be on my best behavior. So I had a good undress. <laughs> I did her testing. I looked under the microscope. I said to my medical, my nurse practitioner student, I said, I bet you she has gonorrhea, which she did, but I sent her home with some medication. I sent her home. I, I gave her doxy. And I said, you're going to have to come back. Cause I feel like this, there's something else with this. And I said, I don't want to call you and try to stalk you. I said, please come back so that I can tell you the results of the culture. So I call, she calls Friday. She says, well, I can't come in. I said, no, you need to come in. I said, even if it's for 20 minutes, come in. So she comes in. I said, this is urgent. This is so urgent. So she comes in and we begin to talk. And I tell her cultures and she begins to talk to me about how she was an Ebony magazine model in real life. She was, and how she had this one night stand and she ended up getting an STD and she says, well, you know, I really like you. Can I come and see you to do my annual exam? I said, sure. My door is always open. Sometimes I want to close it, but it's always open <laughs> so I did saw her for an annual exam. And I remember doing a breast exam. I said, something just don't feel right. And she says, well, I don't have any health insurance. I said, don't worry. I said, we're going to make this happen. I don't know how I got connections. We're going to make this happen. I said, well, because you need a mammogram, but I feel like you need an ultrasound too. So I give her the order and she's like, it's going to cost me a lot of money and blah, blah, blah. So I said, well, here, hold on to the order. I'll call you the next day and I'll get my social worker to help me with trying to figure out how to get you in. Luckily, Milwaukee had a program where women can go in and get uh, free mammograms, but they were booked for like a month. And I said, no, you need, to. I said, well, get the breast ultrasound because I just, I feel like there's a mass somewhere. It's very mm -hmm. small. And I felt something like near her chest wall 
near the sternum, so in the middle in between her breasts. I was like, something just don't feel right. So she gets the ultrasound and they're like, oh, well, there could be something. We're not quite sure. She needs to get a mammogram. So I call the urgent care. They had a like a urgent care type of program set up for impoverished uh, patients who didn't have insurance. She gets a mammogram the following week. The radiologist calls me and he's like, you need to send me an order for a biopsy. I see the mass. I want to take a look at it and let's biopsy. I said, I tell you what, go ahead and do it. I'm sending it ASAP. That's when I was like 20 years younger and was like superwoman. So I was doing <laughs> and it came at positive for breast cancer. Mm-hmm. So needless to say, she's panicking um, because she's like, I don't have any insurance. I said, don't worry about it. We're going to get it done. Like we're going to do whatever we need to do to get it done. I immediately call the community services at the hospital. I say, hey, I have a patient who's diagnosed with breast cancer. What can we do? The radiologist was like, we already got a program set up. Unfortunately, she cannot have it done at this hospital, but we'll get it set up at another hospital. Within two weeks, she had her surgery. She had her mastectomy. She unfortunately had to have both her breasts removed and she had to go through chemotherapy. And all the while I was, you know, I would call her periodically. I wasn't expecting her to give me a call back. I just wanted to make sure that, you know, hey, I know what's going on. You're not out there alone, you know. So she really touched me. She came back to see me six months later, no fingernails, you know, no hair. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting because she's, she was an ebony model. Um, and then for her to walk in with a scarf on her hair, and no nails. She was like, I went to this, the nail salon for the first time, Dr. Burgess, and she says, I was able to put on some fake nails on, your, on her little stubs. She says, I just felt mm. so, she was that type of woman that she, I mean, the first time I saw her, she had a full length fur coat on, okay? And you couldn't tell her nothing. She had jewelry mm. everywhere. And you know, I diagnosed with gonorrhea. Then, you know, I see her, a week later for an annual exam because she had to come back for a test to cure. So I told her, I said, well, you don't come back. We'll do a test to cure and do a PAP at the same time. So that's mm-hmm. how everything started. And um, to this day, and we still talk. Oh, wow. That was, oh my gosh. It's been over a decade. Um, mm-hmm. I've been invited to her mother's uh, book signing. She sends me a picture every Christmas. And... Mm-hmm. You know, our hair's going back and everything. And it's, so it just really touched you because you just never know. When you're having a bad day, mm-hmm. you never know how you can touch someone's life. I remember my first patient working in a community health center. I just got out of residency. I trained in Detroit. So I was used to, I was used to taking care of my brown people and brown, black and brown mm-hmm. people. I was used mm-hmm. to that. And I remember my first, very first patient she was a waitress who had been working at one of the famous restaurants in downtown uh, Milwaukee. It was like a little juke, juke joint, but it had been there for 20 years. Skinny lady, sweet as pie. My partner had done a biopsy of a cervix, so she had never had a pap smear. I mean, she had a pap smear, I don't know, 30 years ago. And it came back as cervical cancer, cervical carcinoma. So first I was really upset because I was like, I can't believe he's going to make me. I don't even know this lady. 
I had to walk in this room and tell her that she's got cancer. Like, really? Like, you couldn't wait till you got back from being on vacation? And I mean, I understood it. But I just, at that moment, I was having a conversation with myself. Because I was like, I don't want to go in this room and tell this lady. I said, this lady don't even know me. I said, well, things don't happen by chance. There's a reason for everything. Mm -hmm. I go in the room. I said, did anyone come with you? And she says, yeah, my daughter did. So I said, okay. I said, well, can you have her come in the room? And she says, well, I know I had a pap smear. I just want to, I said, okay. I said, all right. I said, you never met me before. I just started working here. I said, my name is Dr. Burgess. I just want to tell you that my, my partner did a biopsy. Actually, he did a pap and the service did not look good. So he just went ahead and did a biopsy. I said, well, the biopsy results came back positive. You have cervical cancer. And she was in shock. And I said, you know what? I'm going to step out the room. I said, I'm going to get your daughter. Okay. So I go into the waiting room. I get the daughter. And I say, hey, you know, I just want you to come in the room with me. Um, and I, the daughter came in. She was like asking her mom what's wrong. Her mom said, this doctor here told me I just got cancer. And so the daughter looks at me like, what are, what are you talking about? Like in disbelief, I said, I'm sorry, but your mom had a biopsy done by one of my colleagues and it came back as cervical cancer. And the first thing that the daughter said was, well, is she going to die? So I have a very strange sense of humor. And I said, well, you know, everybody has to die. But the question is, are you going to still live are you gonna live and she didn't get it and i said let us take care of this so that your mom can live and of course she had no insurance working with this company for 20 years restaurant for 20 years she said well, i have no insurance i said that's okay i said it's my first day here but i'm gonna I'm figure out somebody is gonna do this surgery you're gonna get the radiation chemotherapy that you need and she did. She, um, within a week, she had had the surgery done and she had started on chemotherapy. And, um, you know, she, I had to fill out disability papers and everything because she totally was, you know, off of work. But it's just those touch points in our lives that really make a difference and really keep us in check with like, in a heartbeat, things can change. Like we wake up one morning, we hate the fact that we're getting out of bed, but then we got to remember there are some people who didn't wake up. There are some people who pulled out their driveway and didn't make it to work because they got into an accident and died. And so whenever I feel myself like getting very upset or sometimes I take things for granted, I'm like, Tina, take a step back. It's not about you. Remember, the impact that we have on others, that's the most important thing when it comes to our purpose in life is to make sure that we make an impact other people's lives. It's not us impressing ourselves, getting all the accolades, but it's making sure that the people that we contact, come in contact with, are loved and understood and getting the help that they need. So those are two stories I have. I mean, I have many stories, but I, <laughs> but those are my two. And that was just, that was like in my early years of practice. And like I said, the one, the lady with the breast cancer, she's been in remission ever since. We still talk. I still text her. I send her letters. She is, I've come over, I've been over to her house. She's cooked for me. 
she knows my kids. And this is like the ebony model with for full length yeah. coach on that you didn't want to talk to. You're like, who is this chick? But aside from everything, humanity is so important. So, I mean, I really appreciate the fact that you guys do this podcast because you never know who you touch and who you may inspire, who it, what it may trigger in other people. So it's so important that we show and share our knowledge with others. So I thank Shalana for inviting me over here to talk and share what I have. I, and I mean, I don't think I have a lot, but I think I have enough to at least pass it on to others so they can share with others. Yeah, thank you so much. All the information that you gave us tonight was definitely amazing. As I said before, I think Mm -hmm. that someone will benefit from this. And this is why I do the show. I know at one point, I'll just be a little transparent. I was getting a little discouraged because, you know, the following wasn't where I wanted it to be by this point in doing this. But Somebody said to me the other day, just keep doing it. You never know who's watching. You never know who's listening. And the following that I do have, I want to make a commitment to just providing them with the knowledge that they can use to address their individual situations. And that's what it's all about. It's not the following. It's not the accolades, as you mentioned. It's just basically making sure that people get the care that they deserve. And you have done such an amazing job doing that. I have followed you. I've worked with you. I've seen what you can do. And um, I just think that you are an amazing and wonderful physician and all your patients are blessed to have you in their presence and have you just taken care of them. And I just thank you for tonight, honestly. Thank like, you. Like, yeah. like, really but I can, I can talk. I talk too much sometimes. But <laughs> you guys, stop me. I mean, again, I thank you. I am happy because guess what? I am not writing a paper. I'm not doing an mm-hmm. Excel <laughs> MBA. And I'm like, mm-hmm. oh nothing to do. Like, I can drink wine and like conversate, and there's nothing to do. I'm going to catch up on some TV after I get off this a zoom and be happy like i'm, I'm too excited like there's no plan like i cannot contain myself right now same here same here and i'll be watching some tv tonight as well too <laughs> but sure. i would also like to thank um, my co-host of the wind down for coming on tonight as well nalita caroline and alexis thank you so much for tonight and to wrap this show up as I always say that is a wrap thank you for listening and supporting the eavesdrop I hope that you enjoyed this episode if you did not have the opportunity to listen to part one be sure to go back and listen to all the wonderful information in that episode. If you are enjoying the eavesdrop and would like to continue to show your support, be sure to subscribe, listen, rate, and share this wonderful podcast, if I do say so myself, (laughs) with other women. Rating the podcast makes the show visible to other women who may need this information. 
Stay updated on all of the eavesdrop news by following the podcast on Instagram at the real eavesdrop underscore podcast. Again, that is the real eavesdrop underscore podcast. Also, if you have any questions, you may email me at drshalanabattle at gmail.com. And guess what? The eavesdrop finally has a website, y'all. On the website, you can catch up on old shows, submit questions, and message me anonymously, and so much more. Go check it out at theeavesdroppodcast.com. Well, until the next episode, be well, be whole, and be blessed. Bye.